The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to School Fox. Here are your headlines. A choppy trade on Wall Street, but the Dow logs a recovery after the worst day of 2019. As China says, it hopes to meet halfway on a trade deal and U.S. retail sales surge. The Shanghai Composite is on pace to close out its best week since June, while Japan overtakes China as the biggest foreign holder of U.S. treasuries. Eurozone bond yields hit fresh record lows as the ECB's Ollie Wren hints the central bank is standing by to deliver a significant stimulus package in September. Hedge fund billionaire Ray Dalio tells CNBC exclusively there's a strong chance the U.S. will fall into recession before the 2020 election. In the next uh, two years, uh, let's say prior to the next election, there's probably a 40% chance of a recession. Well, happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box. Uh, we finally made it after an incredible roller coaster of a week when it comes to markets. Yesterday on Wall Street, it was a choppy trading session, but ultimately the U.S. consumer came to the rescue. And we've got the S&P 500 and the Dow both ending in positive territory. That came after better than expected retail sales data and a rosier outlook from Walmart where earnings beat expectations. So this uh, idea, this theme of the U.S. consumer remaining strong the consumption being a huge part of the U.S. economy remaining strong has provided some relief to investors on a week when global recession fears have been firmly at the fore. The Nasdaq, though, uh, managed to end in negative territory, uh, bucking the trend, ending about 0.09% lower, dragged down by Cisco shares. But overall, we're looking at some stabilization on Wall Street. Consumer staples led the gains yesterday up 1.5%. That was the best performance since January. And Walmart, as I mentioned there, the key stock in focus on the positive side of things gained about 6% after those strong earnings. Worth noting uh, on the negative side, we did see an 11% fall in General Electric. Very idiosyncratic story there, driving shares to their worst day since 2008. That's after a well-known whistleblower ha- alleged that GE has hidden some financial problems. So that stock uh, suffering on the back of that report. But let's get back to the macro and take a look at treasuries, where the, the flight into bonds continued sending yields lower Yesterday, we saw the 30-year yield hit a record low, falling below 2% for the first time ever, uh, currently trading at 1.9957%. The 10-year Treasury note saw yields drop to a three-year low, uh, currently around 1.538%. But worth noting, we did see some steepening along the 30-year, 10-year part of the curve, which is important. We've had a lot of focus this week on the inversion that we saw uh, on the 10-year, two-year. But the key here is, uh, is to look at the flattening of the curve, not just the absolute So the fact that we saw yields fall yesterday, but some steepening uh, perhaps uh, has provided investors a little bit of comfort in a week when the bond market has sent a a very uh, severe warning signal, according to many experts. Let's take a look at the dollar, which uh, yesterday the dollar index logged its third positive session in a row, uh, edging about 0.1% higher. Now this morning we're seeing real stabilization across the board. The dollar pretty much flat versus the yen, the euro just a touch light versus the dollar and sterling uh, up a little bit versus the dollar around that 1.209 mark. 
Let's take a look at oil markets next. Uh, yesterday, we saw some uh, so the slide in oil continue. Uh, WTI ended about 1.4% lower. Brent about 2% lower. Now this morning, we're seeing a bit of a bounce back. WTI up about 1.3%. Brent up about 1%. Uh, some signs of potentially easing cons- easing uh, pressure, uh, easing tensions in the Middle East. Uh, we saw the, uh, um, worth noting that Gibraltar has released the Iranian oil tanker that was seized in July. So perhaps uh, contributing to the bounce we're seeing in oil this morning. Gold pulling back a little bit, uh, 0.07% lower in trade this morning, but about the $15.22 uh, mark. And yesterday, we did see the bid for gold continue, uh, albeit the gains were relatively modest in comparison to what we've seen recently. Let's move on to the Asian markets, where that stabilization, that relatively positive tone from Wall Street has filtered through. The Shanghai Composite up about 0.7%. Uh, the Hang Seng also up about 0.8% yesterday, We got news of a stimulus package coming from authorities in Hong Kong to the tune of about $2.4 billion, so trying to ease some of the fallout from the ongoing protests. Worth noting, in Hong Kong, we're bracing for more protests this weekend, so keeping a very close eye on the situation there. The Nikkei 225, about 0.1% lower. Uh, Finally, let's take a look at European opening calls and see how we're shaping up for the open in Europe. The Italian market set to open up today after a break yesterday. They were closed for public holiday. We're looking at green across the board for Europe. One thing I want to just uh, highlight is that we did hear from the ECB's Ollie Wren, as uh, we mentioned there in the headlines yesterday, calling for a significant easing package from the ECB, calling for uh, a wide range of purchases from the central bank, uh, potentially including equities, certainly not ruling it out. So something that investors will continue to digest today, and we'll be discussing the potential fallout from those comments uh, on, on the show this morning. Karen? Juliana, let's delve further into the latest on traders. China has vowed to retaliate against new U.S. tariffs, but reiterated a call for the Trump administration to meet Beijing halfway in negotiations. Eunice joins us with more from Beijing. Eunice, it sounds as though both challenges start in a fixed position. They take a couple of paces and meet halfway. It's not as easy as that. <laughs> No, absolutely not. And and from what we heard overnight, uh, President Trump believes that this trade deal is close, uh, but uh, the Chinese, maybe not so much. So President Trump told reporters overnight that he thought that the trade war was going to be fairly short and that as far as he knew, the September round of trade negotiations was still on. Uh, He said that the Chinese were very interested in continuously buying American uh, agricultural products very quickly to resume some of those purchases. And he also also said that he and President Xi Jinping were going to have a phone conversation. This is what he said. We're having very good discussions with China. They very much want to make a deal. We'll see what happens. We had a deal and they decided not to make it. Now I think they would like to have had that opportunity again because I think they really would. I think they really missed a great opportunity. I think they feel that they missed a great opportunity. He also said that he didn't think that China would actually retaliate when it comes to an increase in the tariffs. However, this is where the difference lies in their opinion, because the Chinese announced yesterday that they would take on countermeasures on a um, on a posting on the finance ministry website. The authorities here said that they were felt that the U.S.'s move seriously contravenes the consensus at the G20 meeting and that it deviates from the correct track of dialogue. And so because of this, they would have to take necessary countermeasures. 
countermeasures. Now, there's no specifics on what those countermeasures are, but the main point is that despite the fact that President Trump had gone ahead and delayed some of the tariffs, the Chinese don't necessarily feel that this is a concession aimed at them. So uh, separately to that, we did hear last night from the foreign ministry as well. Um, the markets were latching onto the statement and we saw the futures go up tremendously because it sounded much more conciliatory. The foreign ministry said, we hope the U.S. side will meet China halfway. But of the two, uh, the finance ministry statement uh, probably holds more weight or is more meaningful uh, just because the foreign ministry statement and those remarks are something that we in China hear very, very frequently from Chinese officials when they're describing Beijing's approach. This is a boilerplate standard way of describing um, how China feels about the trade dispute. Karen? Eunice, thank you very much for bringing us the latest twists and turns around the trade story. Much appreciated. Meanwhile, China has been edged out as the largest foreign holder of U.S. Treasuries. According to Treasury Department data, Japan took the top spot in June, adding about $21 billion in U.S. government bonds to take its total holdings to $1.12 trillion. China added $2 billion in Treasuries in the same period, reversing a four-month selling streak and taking its total to $1.1 trillion. Our colleague Christine Tan sat down with Ray Dalio, founder of the world's largest hedge fund, Bridgewater, and asked him whether Beijing could weaponize its holdings as part of the trade war. Could they? Um, of, of course they could. Or is the scenario unlikely? Uh, 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 of course. They... When one goes into this new world, there are a lot of unknowns. Okay, and you have to realize that there are different pressure points. There was a symbiotic relationship between the United States. The United States uh, wanted to spend more than it earned and, mm. um, and use that to buy Chinese and other imports. As a result, they sort of both got what they wanted, which were different things. China wanted to get richer. China wanted to build savings. The United States wanted to um, get that and really pay for it on credit. Mm -hmm. Both of those things happened. Now we see that, that we have a debtor-creditor relationship, mm -hmm. not just a trade relationship. And that a, a, can be a dangerous thing. What are the chances of it happening? I can't, I can't say. I can't say. Okay. I could say, as I say, as you get deeper and deeper into wars. But you wouldn't rule it out? I wouldn't rule, I wouldn't rule it out, no. Ray Dalio also told us he sees a 40% chance of a recession in the United States before the 2020 election. And stay tuned for more from that interview in the next half an hour of the program. And joining us now around the studio set, Banu Boeja, who is the global head of cross-asset strategy at UBS. Banu, lovely to see you again. We've had the markets tanking on recession fears this week, and suddenly Beijing and Washington are both talking about potential for a trade resolution after we've seen that market uncertainty stretch on right through 2019. Is there a deal coming? Do you see one in sight? Uh, I think it's difficult to see a deal coming right now. We've had so many false starts. Um, it's difficult to see whether this will actually be a deal that will sustain, especially as we head towards the US election. I think China is right to be skeptical. I think the markets are pricing in a reasonable amount of optimism that things will happen. So this is not peak pessimism at all in the market. Um, it's somewhere between, we, our, our trade war monitor says that we're somewhere between peak optimism and peak pessimism, slightly closer to pessimism, but you're by no means pricing in sort of 
the idea that you're not going to get a trade deal at all. So the market is hopeful that in the next six to 12 months, we'll get some sort of a deal. But I just feel that all these false starts have created so much uncertainty that if I'm a if I'm a businessman, there's no way that I'm going to be investing in the very near term. And I think that's the real collateral damage. The switch on, switch off thing, which basically means that even if PMIs bottom out, they're not going to go much higher from out here. And the market's already pricing in a PMI rise to about 52 points. And I think that's the real issue, that we get we stabilize in the global trading system, but we don't rise aggressively from In here. a week where the market has been on high alert for the signaling function of the inverted bond yield, and whether that does foreshadow a recession, what does it mean for emerging markets, one has to ask. And if I think where we started the year, where we had growth in many developed markets, investors chased even higher returns, higher growth from emerging markets. Do we now need to step back because if the US is at risk of a recession at some point, that emerging markets will not decouple? I think that's absolutely right. The, the only point is that I don't believe that the US is in, at a major risk of recession right away. So yes, the US too stands has touched inversion uh, for a bit. But in fact, the three-month tenure, which in statistically has been a better indicator of recession, has been in negative territory for three months and the market didn't care. Um, I think the inversion of the US or the flattening of the US yield curve actually is a much bigger statement on what's going on in the rest of the world. So if we are going to see uh, a recession in the US, the path f for that comes from Asia and Europe. And that's where the bigger problems are. I think, look, we, we started the discussion with the trade war. But one of the bigger events of the last 18 months has been the fact that China is not stimulating their economy as aggressively as it did in previous cycles. So the 2016 cycle that everyone thought was going to be repeated in 2019 is just not coming through, both in terms of size, the magnitude of easing, but more importantly, in terms of the direction towards which that easing is directed to. It's not the housing market. It's the domestic consumer in China. And that's why European earnings are not picking up. And that's why Australian earnings and that's why Brazilian earnings are not picking up. So China's import intensity declining is a structural issue. And I think that's what uh, global yield curves are picking up. The US is just a response to that. US data itself is fine. Uh, so that's why I feel that, and one more point, if I may, is that the yield curve has flattened, uh, and this is fixed income terminology, but it has bull flattened. So the long end has come down, which is which stimulates the economy. It's not the short end. Unlike 2007, it's not the short end that has gone up. So you're not restricting credit. Financial conditions are pretty easy. So I don't think a recession is imminent. I do think that a slowdown in the U.S. is coming, as, as it is everywhere else in the world. But I don't think a recession in the U.S. is imminent. So in other words, what you're saying is the big call really comes down to China and whether they are willing to kick off another round of significant stimulus. It feels like at this point, they're sticking to their pledge to try to pull back the sort of widespread broad-based stimulus that they've ignited in the past. Uh, do you think that that's going to change? I mean, if we do see a sort of softer slowdown in China, is that going to be enough to get Beijing to really change their tune and go back on those promises not to continue stimulating in a big way? You know, as a policymaker, you worry about a lot of things. But what China worries about more than anything else are two things. First, the labor market, as does every government, but you know, especially a socialist government. But second, housing market, because housing is the collateral of their credit boom. And here's the point. Unlike 2016, the housing market in China is not in distress. So China can play the long game and not throw a lot of liquidity at this because they also know that they have some constraints. I mean, China is not unbounded. China has some constraints. Look at the renminbi, look at their capital flows problem. So if you continue to ease aggressively and give one housing boom after another, you can eventually sort of get much closer to the cliff. So I think China is doing the right thing by not giving a lot of liquidity. It's the rest of the world that has gotten used to China being the father of global growth and give a strong growth. And that's what European yield curves are picking up, despite Rain's comments. 
you find that the, no one's talking about that flattening. U.S. is flattening at 157. The two years at 157 and the curve is flat. The German yield curve is 20 basis point steepness at negative 88 basis points. Right? And similarly, France, you know, it's a, it's a reasonably um, a flat yield curve at negative 39 basis points. That's where the markets are screaming liquidity trap. Uh, and between US and China, I think Europe is the collateral damage because growth was not that strong to begin with. And if China doesn't give a strong demand, I think that's where it'll be difficult to see how growth expectations really revolve. All right, uh, we'll pick that conversation up uh, in, in just a little while. Absolutely uh, worth uh, worth delving into that in a little bit more detail. But meanwhile, let me take you to another story uh, in focus this morning. China's envoy to the UK has warned Beijing will act, quote, swiftly if protests in Hong Kong intensify. His comments come as hundreds of China's armed police conducted exercises in Shenzhen, a mainland city next to Hong Kong. The former British colony has seen 10 weeks of anti-government demonstrations with another protest planned for Sunday. Meanwhile, President Trump suggested that President Xi meet with protesters in a bid to end the unrest. I am concerned. I wouldn't want to see a violent crackdown. I put a little bit of a memo out last night. He's a man I like a lot. I get along with him very well, President Xi. And I said that I would be willing to bet that if he sat down with the protesters, a group of representative protesters, I'll bet he'd work it out in 15 minutes. I bet he'd work it out very quickly. I know it's not the kind of thing he does, but I think it wouldn't be a bad idea. Coming up on the show, the man who took down Bernie Madoff accuses GE of a bigger fraud than Enron. Get the details right after the break. And later, we close out Food Week with celebrity chef of Nobu. Stick around to find out how to properly eat sushi. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors, and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. shares saw their biggest drop in a decade after accusations the conglomerate submitted fraudulent financial filings to conceal $38 billion in potential losses. Accounting expert Harry Markopoulos, who flagged the first warnings around Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, made the allegations in a 175-page report entitled, GE, a bigger fraud than Enron. GE CEO Larry Culp said the report amounts to market manipulation, while board member Leslie Seidman told CNBC she stands behind the company's financial reporting. To see Markopoulos discuss the allegations with her U.S. colleagues, head to CNBC.com. Alibaba shares popped after the Chinese e-commerce giant beat revenue and earnings expectations. Arjun joins us now from Guangzhou with the details. Arjun, what drove the growth for Alibaba in the latest quarter? 
Well, Giuliano, it was an incredibly important quarter for Alibaba because they needed to prove to the market that they could withstand some of this macroeconomic pressure, particularly related to the U.S.-China trade war. And just uh, uh, they did that through the results. Revenues up 42 percent. They had an EPS beat as well. And, and back to your question on what drove that. Well, it was their biggest business, that core commerce business, which accounts for around 87 percent of revenue. You saw revenue in the core commerce business up 44 percent. And it wasn't just the platforms they operate in China. T-Ball and Taobao. It was also their food delivery business, which saw over 100% revenue growth in the quarter as well. So you're seeing revenue come from other areas uh, as well. And the management also mentioned on the earnings call that they were pushing into these lower tier cities as well, where they see a big opportunity uh, going forward. Another bright spot for the company was their cloud computing business. Those revenues were up over 60%. Now, a lot of analysts see this cloud computing business as a major growth driver going forward. And Phil Alibaba's just scratching the surface when it comes to, to this particular division at the moment. Alibaba is the largest cloud player in China at the moment, followed by Tencent. Now, there are another thing uh, that got the market excited was really about Alibaba's discipline when it comes to spending. Over the past few qu quarters, you've seen a, a drop in margin, um, and that's because Alibaba is investing heavily in, in a bunch of new areas. That's been weighing on margin. Uh, and while you saw costs increase in this quarter as a percentage of revenue they actually dropped and there were margin improvements in businesses including the cloud division and their digital and entertainment business an area where they've been spending a lot of money buying content and making original content uh, as well it was a huge report as i mentioned to prove to the market that alibaba could still perform strongly amid the u.s china trade war daniel jung the ceo of alibaba said on the earnings call that actually the geopolitical situation was a challenge as well as an opportunity because he feels that the Chinese economy is going to move from a consumption uh, to a consumption and service sector driven economy. And that is where Alibaba will see opportunities as it continues to uh, penetrate the Chinese market into those smaller tier cities. So, so far, uh, a very good earnings report. The market very happy. And that's why Baba got a boost in US trade overnight. Guys, back to you. Arjun, thank you so much for bringing us that detail. Well, sticking in the retail space, we also got a good report from Walmart. As I mentioned yesterday, it was choppy trade on Wall Street, but we did ultimately see the U.S. consumer bail the market out. Walmart led gains on the Dow after the U.S. retail giant beat second quarter forecasts on both the top and bottom lines. The world's largest retailer posted a 2.8% rise in same-store sales and raised its outlook for the full year. U.S. retail sales rose a stronger than expected 0.7% in July on the back of solid online grocery and clothing store performance. The data is a welcome sign of consumer optimism in the face of ongoing U.S.-China trade tensions. Staying around the studio set this morning, Banu Boeja, Global Head of Cross-Asset Strategy at UBS. Now, the retail sales number barely moved the needle when it crossed yesterday for the bond markets that should be super sensitive after that inverted yield curve. What is this saying? Because I think if you look at the consumer, it's been a real sign of strength in the United States. Having recently been there, I saw no signs of stress on the high street whatsoever. Does this change later on this year? And could this be one data point where investors become a little bit more nervous about? So it's a very important question, but I find it fascinating that uh, both Alibaba and Wall Street, um, Walmart are telling you that um, there's a big divergence between what's going on with trade and investment and consumption. Uh, consumption is strong because thus far labor markets have not been impacted. It's probably because a lot of our manufacturing has gone automated and that's why as manufacturing slows, as global trade wars hit, you have, haven't actually seen a big hit on investment and our 
so far on the labor market and consumption has been fine. So the big question, as you rightly say, is at what point does the weakness in investment and trade hit the labor market and therefore consumption? And I think the real test case for that is going to be Europe again. I think the U.S. consumption, the U.S. consumer, the U.S. labor market are in a reasonable space. China has weakened quite a lot. So Alibaba surprised us um, on the on the upside. The retail sales have been coming down. And I think the Chinese consumer is fine from here. That's why the policymakers are not adding a lot. I think we have to watch Germany. I think we have to watch France and Italy. That's where if you continue to see manufacturing weakness, that's where you could see um, labor market. And that's why the, the, the curve is as flat as it is and you know, at such a low level in Europe. I don't think the U.S. consumer is going to crack uh, in a very big way. The labor market should weaken. It's been extraordinarily strong. It should weaken modestly. But again, I don't think a recession in the U.S. is imminent, unlike sort of the previous signals of the yield curve. Now, you mentioned Germany as a key risk there. And I mean, so far, the labor market has been a really strong part of that economy. And right alongside the construction market, you can say those are the real bright points there. But we have heard from a lot of the giants in Germany that they're cutting thousands of jobs. I mean, is it just a matter of time before that starts to filter through the labor market? And, you know, critically, the labor market is such a politically sensitive area. I Could this be the, you know, the, the what turns the needle for Germany? That's right. I fear it may well be because we've done a lot of work on this and, and our evidence lab uh, results actually show us that uh, employment situation in southern Germany, in, in Bavaria, in Bayern, is actually weakening. And then that's where you get the manufacturing employment and that, that is actually weakening. So we're beginning to see the first signs of cracks. So I don't think it'll be the US consumer. The Chinese consumer has already done that. The labor markets in these economies, as I said, are strong. And that's why you probably won't get... The problem for the market is that in China and in the US, you're expecting a lot of stimulus. The market's expecting 4.6 cuts from the Fed. That's unlikely. Germany, I think, is the place to watch. And I do think that it is a matter of time before the labor market weakens. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.